seated, pray for these little ones and be blessed as they minister. They're excited about singing. We're excited for them to sing. So I trust they'll bless your heart today.
Well, amen. We thank God for all those uh, young people developing their talents for God and rejoicing in their using them here. Revelation chapter one this morning, please. Revelation chapter one. In our last study together, I reminded you and pointed out that this is the revelation not of St. John the Divine, but the revelation of Jesus Christ. John was used to bring the book to us and the message, but John is not the focus of the book. The main subject, the main theme, the main hero of the book is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the revelation of him, the unveiling of him, the revealing of Jesus Christ. And beloved, the picture we have here in Revelation is much different than what we find in the Gospels of the Lord Jesus Christ and about his life. It's the same Jesus we read about in the Gospels. But here in Revelation, he is unveiled. I want you to think for a few moments about the difference between Jesus's first coming and his second coming. In fact, an author expressed it this way. The first time Jesus came, he came veiled in the form of a child. A star marked his arrival. Wise men brought him gifts. There was no room for him. Only a few attended his arrival and he came as a baby. The next time Jesus comes, he will be recognized by all. Heaven will be lit by his glory. He will bring rewards for his own. The world won't be able to contain his glory. Every eye shall see him. He will come as sovereign king and Lord of all. There's a difference, a great difference between his first coming and his second coming. You see, beloved, he is no longer that babe in a manger. He is the king of kings and Lord of lords. He's no longer the lamb being led to the slaughter. He's the one that's going to rule with a rod of iron. He's the risen, glorified and soon coming savior. And we say today, even so come Lord Jesus. And as we study Revelation together, as we dig into this very special book, we should be filled with fresh praise and adoration and worship for the Lord Jesus Christ as we begin to see him as he is as we're reminded of the victory that is ours because of him we should be filled with praise a fresh wonder praise and glory well I'm excited to jump back in I hope you are too and by now you've found your place in Revelation chapter 1 and today we're going to focus on verses 4 through 8 4 through 8 and then next week God willing we'll finish up chapter 1 looking at a Very special passage of scripture. But this morning we'll back up and begin reading at verse one as a way of review. And then we'll look specifically today at verses four through eight. Revelation chapter one, beginning at verse one, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which was shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to God. 
to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, John, in these verses, verses four through eight, he's still greeting the readers, the recipients of this letter. He mentions himself first there in verse four, John. Uh, He's the human instrument that God used to transmit this letter and to give this letter. He mentions the recipients, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, those churches that will be receiving the letter. We're told specifically which churches he's talking about later in chapter one. And then he gives a greeting here. He gives a greeting, a blessing to them. And as Spurgeon noted uh, when he was writing a sermon on this text, blessed men scatter blessings. And John is a blessed man and he's scattering blessings here. And it says there in verse four, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and so forth. And so his greeting is a familiar one to Bible students. It's a greeting of grace and peace. You read about that in some of the letters to Paul uh, written by Paul. Grace and peace be to you. And the order is significant, beloved. You see, you cannot have the peace of God. Until you have the grace of God, God's grace comes, then God's peace follows. And that's true when it comes to our salvation. We need the grace of God and the peace of God in our lives. But John is addressing believers here who are under hardship and they needed God's grace and God's peace. And even though we may be here today and we're saved and we've known the grace of God and we have peace with God, we still need the grace of God and the peace of God. As Lawson pointed out, the Christian life operates by grace. We're saved by grace. We grow by grace. We're empowered by grace. He said this grace is not a one time event. It's what drives the entire Christian life. And because of God's grace in our life, we have peace not only with God, but we can have the peace of God. There's never a moment. When we do not need the grace of God, God's unmerited favor to us, God giving us what we don't deserve, his grace. And so we have this blessing here. And John says, listen, I'm writing to these seven churches and I want to say to you grace and I want to say to you peace. But I want you to notice the source of this blessing, the source of this greeting. It's a triune blessing. It's the Trinity here. God, the father. God, the son, God, the Holy Spirit. Look back at verse four, John to the seven churches, which are in Asia. Grace to you and peace. Watch this from. So now he's going to talk about where the source is, where it comes from, who it comes from, from him who is and who was and who is to come. Now, when you first read that, you might be tempted to think, well, he's talking about Jesus Christ there. He's talking about Jesus. But not right there, because Jesus is mentioned in the next verse. As a continuation of the thought, verse five says, and from Jesus Christ. So he's not talking about Jesus there when he says this, the very first part of verse four there from him who is and who was and who is to come. So this must be God, the father. And he says here that he is the one who is and who was and who is to come. God, the father. Now, this means he's eternal. He's timeless, if you will. He is past 
present and future all at the same time. Now, that's mind blowing. We can't get our arms wrapped around that, that he's the eternal God. Uh, He's past, present and future all at the same time. In fact, he sees the past, the present and the future all at the same time. He's in the past, the present and the future all at the same time. Why? Because he's outside of time. He's above time. He's not bound by time. And so he he saw us meeting here this morning a thousand years ago, a million years ago, ten million years ago. Because why? Because he sees, he's in, he's timeless, he's eternal. Past, present and future. It's all alike to him. You say, well, explain that preacher. Sorry, I can't. You can't. That's one reason he's God and we're not. He's eternal. He's the eternal God. And we find here he talks about the, the God, the father, him who is and who was and who is to come. And then in verse four, he asks the second member of the Trinity. He says there and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. There we have the Holy Spirit. Now, you might be thinking, well, preacher, I thought the Bible says there's only one Holy Spirit. And here it says the seven spirits. Well, you are correct. The Bible does teach that there's one Holy Spirit as a member of the Godhead. But the number seven is a very important number when it comes to Revelation. We'll see it again and again and again. In fact, it's the number of perfection. It's the number of completion. I'm told I haven't counted, but I'm told it appears 54 times in the book of Revelation. That's significant. And the Holy Spirit here is referred to as the seven spirits. And it's not the only time he's referred to in that way. If you want to jot down these references, I'll read them to you. Revelation chapter three, verse one. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, these things say he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Revelation chapter four, verse five. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Revelation chapter five, verse six. And I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So what does it mean when it refers to the Holy Spirit as the seven spirits of God? Well, I believe it's a reference to what is said about the Holy Spirit in Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. I want to jot this reference down. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. There is talking about the Holy Spirit. Now listen to what it says. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding The spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Seven things talked about there concerning the Holy Spirit. He's the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, counsel, might, knowledge and fear. That is, it's a complete whole picture, if you will. And so we find here a description concerning the Holy Spirit, the seven spirits. Now, other Bible scholars, I think, well, really, that's probably not what is being talked about there. It's a reference to what the Bible talks about in Zechariah chapter four, verses one through ten. I'm not going to take the time to go read that today. I'll just tell you what's in Zechariah chapter four, verses one through ten. There you have a description of a lampstand with seven lamps, a menorah. And, and, And that's a description there of the Holy Spirit and his work. Likewise, you saw there about the eyes of the Lord in Revelation chapter five, verse six. 
And so the idea is it could be one of those things, but in reality, it's probably all those things. It's a picture of who the Holy Spirit is and his work and his ministry. But we know he's talking about the Holy Spirit there, not seven Holy Spirits, but one Holy Spirit, the sevenfold spirit, if you will, in his ministry, in his attributes and what he does. So you have God, the father, you have God, the Holy Spirit, and then you have who? Jesus Christ. And we find the third member of the Trinity in verse five, verse five. Now, you know, the Trinity is God is one. Yet in three persons, God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy Spirit. You say, explain that preacher. You explain it. In fact, I I don't think we can explain it. I don't think we can fully understand that. In fact, I think if you could explain that, you'd be God. But we accept it by faith. It's taught in scripture. He's one God in three persons. God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy Spirit. And we find the third member of the, of the Godhead mentioned here in uh, verse five. Charles Ryrie, the great theologian, said no illustration can possibly capture all that is involved in the biblical revelation of the Trinity. There's different ways people try to describe the Trinity. They talk about the different uh, forms of water, uh, the different forms of water. Take on it's all water, but it's different forms or or, or a, a three leaf clover. It's it's one clover, but it has three parts. But all that, all that fails, all that falls short. We, we can't capture all that's involved in this, but we take it by faith. And here's the point, beloved, as we look at Revelation here, the blessing of grace and peace that John is giving here, it involves every member of the Godhead. That's a blessing, beloved. Well, let's hurry along and look at this third member of the Trinity. The Lord Jesus Christ and more is said about him in this passage than is said about the father or about the Holy Spirit. Now, why do you think that is? Why is there more said about Jesus Christ than there is about God, the father and God, the Holy Spirit? Well, because of the first four or five words, this is what the revelation of who Jesus Christ. And so let's see some of his unveiling. Notice, first of all, if you will notice who he is. Look back at verse five. And this is a continuation here. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Now, who he is uh, listed here, we're told he's the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth. Very plain there. Another way of saying that, beloved, is to say it this way. He is prophet. Priest and king. He's prophet, priest and king. As prophet, he is the faithful witness. He's a faithful witness. All that he says is true. All that he is, is true. He said this about himself. I am the way, the truth and the life. No man comes to the father except by me. His witness is reliable. He's the faithful witness. When you see Jesus Christ, you see the father. He's the perfect witness. He is prophet there as he's a faithful witnessing. Faithful witness. So he's prophet as priest. He is the firstborn from the dead. That's what it says. He's the firstborn from the dead. That is his sacrificial death and resurrection has made a way to bring us back into a right relationship with the holy God. You see, our sin separated us from the holy God. God is righteous and holy and our sin separated us from him. And there is no way for us to get to God. 
And so God had to come to us, didn't he? And he did that by sending his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And by his perfect life, his sinless life, his sacrificial death and his resurrection, he's made a way to bring us back into a right relationship with the father because he's the firstborn from the dead. Now, listen, please understand this. When it says firstborn, he's not talking about uh, in the sense of time. He's talking about firstborn in the sense of priority or preeminence. I bring that up because others were raised to life. Before Jesus was. We find it in the Old Testament. We find it in the New Testament. In fact, we find the Lord Jesus Christ raising people back from the dead. So it doesn't mean first in time. It means first in priority or first in preeminence. But realize this, though. Those who are raised back to life, whether it be by an Old Testament prophet, whether it be by the Lord Jesus Christ, they were raised back to an earthly life. But they died again. Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus, I would have loved to be there. Would you? He waddles out in his grave clothes, you know. He comes out. They unwrap him, loose him, let him go. But there came a day, guess what? They wrapped him back in grave clothes. He died again. Jesus Christ rose once for all. He rose never to die again. He rose in a glorified body. And he is raised and glorified. Psalm 89, 27, referring to Jesus. Also, I'll make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So it's the idea that he has the preeminence. He has the priority. He's the first fruits. Because he's raised again, because he's resurrected, we too can be resurrected. We will be resurrected. Colossians 1.18. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. He is prophet. He's the faithful witness. He is priest. He's the firstborn from the dead. But he's also what? It says there he is king. Prophet, priest, and king. And as king, it says he's the ruler over the kings of the earth. Now listen, that is true this very moment. That is true this very moment. He is the sovereign Lord of all. You might be thinking, now, preacher, why is there so much evil? Why are there evil, wicked rulers in our world? Why are there evil kings? Why are there those doing this? If he is truly sovereign Lord. Well, here's why. Because he has not exercised his full authority yet. You see, there will be a day when he will come and he will sit on the throne of David and he will rule with a rod of iron and he will rule perfectly. Now, he's sovereign Lord right now, but he hasn't exercised that full authority yet. Just like to think about it. Satan's defeated right now. And one day he'll be bound and cast forever into a lake of fire. And so we have here the Lord Jesus, who he is. He is prophet. He is priest. He is king. But notice, secondly, this morning what he's done. <laughs> Look at what he's done. Look back there at verse five. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, it says very clearly. Don't you love this? If you're a preacher, this is easy, isn't it? I mean, I got three points in that other verse. I got three points right here. He loved us. He washed us and he made us. Notice, first of all, he loved us. Now, your Bible may have it like mine in the past tense. He loved us. That's in the English Bible. Most translations, I think, have it that way. He loved us. In the Greek, it's actually in the present tense. 
You would translate it this way. He loves us. He loves us. He loves us. That's true in the past. That's true in the present. And it's true in the future. That old simple song that, that the children sang this morning is still true. And it's still deep theological teaching. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. It's my prayer, beloved. We'll never get beyond that. Uh, we'll never get past that. No matter how deep we get into our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter how much we may grow in our Bible knowledge, even memorizing whole books, if you will, if we could do that, let us never get beyond the simple truth that Jesus loves me and Jesus loves you. That's remarkable. He loves us. He loves us. I ran across a story, a very interesting story about one of those fellows of church history that I really enjoy and always have, D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody was an evangelist for many years ago, an American evangelist. And D.L. Moody is an interesting character and God used him in a remarkable way. But uh, Pastor Ray Stedman told a story. He said years ago, while I was traveling in the state of Virginia with Dr. Harry Ironside, we met a man who was a rector of an Episcopal church. He said he was a student at England's Cambridge University. Think about Cambridge for a moment. When D.L. Moody was invited to speak to the students, he and a number of other students were furious that such a distinguished institution as Cambridge would invite Moody, an unschooled American preacher, to give a lecture. Now think about Cambridge. D.L. Moody was invited. He said Moody murdered the king's English so badly that he is said to have pronounced the word Jerusalem in one syllable. And he's invited to Cambridge to speak. The night of Moody's appearance, the group of rebellious students sat in the very front row and they were waiting for just the right moment to begin to humiliate D.L. Moody with jeers and mocking. Well, Moody's song leader, you know, you think about Billy Graham and George Beverly Shea. It was D.L. Moody and Ira Sankey. And Ira Sankey got up and sang. The Lord began to work. And right after Ira Sankey sang, without introduction, Moody stepped up on the platform. He pointed his finger at those young men in the front row. And he said, young gentlemen, don't ever think God don't love you for he do. <laughs> Stedman said it was perhaps the most ungrammatical sentence ever uttered at Cambridge University. But Moody in that message, after he said that to those young men, he began to talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. He began to talk about the cross. And in the course of his talk, he repeated those ungrammatical but awesomely powerful words. Young gentlemen, don't ever think that God don't love you, for he do. And Ray Stedman wrote about that rector. He said, concluding his reminiscence of that meeting, the Episcopal rector looked first at Dr. Ironside, then at me. And he said these words. In those moments, I saw myself in a different light. By the end of that meeting, I gave my heart to Jesus Christ. Beloved, he 
loves you. Beloved, don't think that God don't ever love you. For He do! That's poor grammar, but great theology. And I'd rather have great theology and poor grammar, beloved. To realize that God loves you. And he says here, John, he's a blessed man scattering blessings. He said this Jesus, the prophet, priest and king, he loves you. He loved us. But notice, secondly, it says he washed us. And it says he washed us in his own blood. This is the gospel here, beloved. That is, he died in our place, shed his precious blood. He cleansed us from our sin by his blood. Now, your translation may have the word instead of washed. It may have the word loosed. He loosed you from your sin. And that idea is true as well. We were bound in sin. We were in bondage to sin. And he loosed us from our sin. He washed us. He loosed us. But did you notice the order of these truths? Notice how I talked about the fact that grace comes before peace. Did you notice, do you think it's significant that his love is mentioned before his washing? That is, it says he loves us and it says that before he washed us. You might be thinking of Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we were still or yet sinners, Christ died for us. Have you been washed in his blood? Have you? He loves you. God loves you so much He gave His Son for you. Jesus Christ lived a sinless, perfect life, voluntarily laid down His life on the cross, was buried, rose again. He offers to you eternal life. He says, if you'll turn from your sin and place your faith totally in me, I'll give you forgiveness of sin, a home in heaven. I'll make you a child of God, an heir and joint heir with the Lord Jesus Christ, if you'll just simply trust me. Have you been washed in the blood? I'm thankful we still sing about the blood here. Now, some people don't want to sing about the blood. They don't talk about a bloody religion. Listen, without the blood, there's no remission of sin. Without Jesus' blood, we're dead and lost and dying and headed to hell. But he washed us in his blood. Have you been washed in his blood? Would you notice the tense of that, by the way? I told you that the love there is in the present tense. But notice that washed is in the past tense. That's, that's significant. You see, we're washed once for all. We're saved. We're given eternal life. Have you been washed in the blood? Notice it says he loved us. He loves us. He washed us. Then what does it say? He made us. Now, here's what's interesting. Think about this now. He's talking about believers. This is true about you. It says he made us kings and priests to his God and father. Now, some Greek scholars think instead of kings, they should say a kingdom. Instead of kings, a kingdom of priests. But regardless, this is awesome truth. We went from enemies of God, doomed and destined for a devil's hell, to being made pure and clean in Christ's righteousness, a kingdom of priests to God. Now think about that. Oh, beloved, First Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen generation. A royal, see there it is, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Listen, we're a part of the kingdom, kings and priests to God. 
Why? Because he loves us and he washed us in his own blood. And as holy priest, as one pointed out, we offer spiritual sacrifices to God. I'm so thankful we didn't have to go through the Old Testament law and practices this morning, aren't you? You have to bring a sheep in this morning or a lamb. And I've got to kill that thing and gut it and burn it. Now think about that. We don't have to do that. Why? Because he was the lamb slain once for all. He's our perfect sacrifice. And he shed his precious blood. And he died never to die again. And he lives forever. And we offer today spiritual sacrifices to God. Our persons, our possessions, our praise, our service. As royal priests, we tell forth the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And as he's saying all this, and as he's writing all this, John just can't help himself. He bursts forth into praise and adoration. He says there, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And beloved, when you begin to realize just what he's saying and just who Jesus is and just what he's done and just who we are in him, you can't help but praise him if you know him. You can't help it. God, thank you that you sent the prophet, priest and king and he loves us and he washed us and he's made us a kingdom of priests to God. Glory be to his name. Now, we've explored who he is. We've explored what he's done. Now, quickly, let's consider what he Will do. Look again at the passage, verse 7. Behold, pay attention. Behold. Wake up, realize, pay attention. Behold. He is coming. What's he going to do? He's going to come. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. What will he do? He will come again. Now, beloved, listen, this is not the rapture being talked about here. The rapture is the next event on the prophetic timetable. We're looking for Jesus to come. And those who have died in Christ and those of us who are alive will be caught up with him in the air. It will be raptured, will be taken home. And then here upon this earth, there'll be a horrible tribulation time. And then after the tribulation of seven years of hell on earth, the Lord Jesus Christ will return in his second coming or his second advent. And that's what's being referred to here when you're studying your Bible and you're reading about signs of the times and signs of Jesus coming. That's talking about his second coming, not the rapture. Nothing has to happen for the rapture to take place. Let's talk about his second coming. But we know from our study of the scripture that seven years prior to his second coming, there is his rapture of the church. Now, this is his second coming being talked about here after the tribulation period. The second advent, the second coming of Jesus. And it's so certain when he says, behold, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him. Even they who pierced him It's so certain that in verse eight. We almost have a signature or a seal. And the scholars are divided. They say, was well, this Jesus talking here in verse 8? Is this God the Father talking, about in, talking in verse 8? We're not sure. But listen, they're one. Look at what they say. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. That's the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet. I'm the beginning and the end. That is, God is the one who started everything. And God's the one who's going to have the final say. Says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come. He's not bound by time. He knows all things. He's the almighty. Nobody can stay his hand. Nobody can stop him from coming. Nobody can do anything 
if he chooses to act as he does. But back to verse seven, it says, behold, he is coming with clouds. Now, listen, this is not the first time I'll read that verse again. I want to give you some other scripture. Listen to that verse again. Verse seven. Behold, he is coming with clouds. Every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so. Amen. That's not the first time he speaks of his return in the Bible. Listen to what Psalm 104 verse three says. He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters who makes the clouds his chariot who walks on the wings of the wind. Daniel chapter seven, verse 13. I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before me. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieves for him as one grieves for a firstborn. You see how the scriptures all fitting together here, how revelations bring it all together from way back here, all the way up. Matthew 24, 29 and 30. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the son of man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the the earth will mourn. Have you heard that before? We just read it in Revelation. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. We just saw that there, didn't we? With power and great glory. Then you come to the book of Acts. You have the resurrected Lord Jesus there. You have the early church. Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Now, when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up. And a cloud received them out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as they went it, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, two angels, who also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Beloved, he's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He is the one who is and who was and who is to come. And he is coming again. And we say, even so come Lord Jesus, he's coming again. Now, notice the response of people when he does come again. Did you notice there will be those who will rejoice when he comes? I think you find those mentioned at the very end of verse seven, where it says, even so, amen. Lord Jesus, come again. We want you to come again. We're looking for your coming again. But did you notice likewise? There will be those who will mourn. It says in verse seven. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. That is, they're not ready for him to come. They've rejected him. Now, beloved, he is coming. That's settled. That, that's, a sure, that's more sure than you sitting in that pew, than us being in this building. He's coming. Are you ready? Are your family members ready? Are your friends ready? Are your schoolmates ready? Are your coworkers ready? Have you shared the gospel with them? Are you looking for his return? Are you living like Jesus could return at any moment? He's coming. The king is coming. He's coming again. He's coming again. He's coming. He could come today in his rapture. The tribulation could begin today. Are you ready? I wish I had more time. There's so much more here. But let me let me let me close with a story that Adrian Rogers once told. 
He said a Taurus was exploring the sites of Lake Como in northern Italy. And he came to a beautiful castle called the Villa Asconati. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but has anybody ever been there? <laughs> well, it don't matter. You don't know either. He said, feeling brave, he pushed open the gate and went inside. He said to his delight, everything was beautiful. Flowers were blooming in a rainbow of colors. I read the story. I was thinking about Biltmore. Y'all been to Biltmore a lot of you, right? You walk through those gardens and man, it's just amazing to see the flowers there. He says they were blooming in a rainbow of color. The shrubbery was luxuriously green and magnificently pruned to precision. And he said over to the side, the man noticed a gardener on his hands and knees clipping nearly every single blade of grass. The man said, may I look at the garden, the gardens? And the gardener said, you're welcome to come right in. I'm, I'm glad to have a guest. So the man began to look around at the garden there and he asked the gardener, is the owner here today? You know, we're enamored with these owners, aren't we? These huge places. Is the owner here today? The gardener said, no, no, he's away. Well, when's the last time you saw him? He asked. He said, oh, about 12 years ago. The gardener said, 12 years. He said, this place has been empty for 12 years. Yes, said the gardener. Well, the tourist said, well, well, who tells you what to do? And the gardener explained that the owner had an agent in Milan. He said, do you ever see him? Talking about the agent. Do you ever see the agent? Asked the tourist. Still clipping, still pruning, still trimming. The gardener said, never. He just sends instructions. Well, the tourist couldn't believe his ears. He said, but you have everything so beautiful. It looks like you're expecting him tomorrow. And the gardener said today, sir, I expect him to come at any time, perhaps today. And Adrian Rogers went on to say, every child of God ought to be living that way. Not as if Jesus would have come way off in the future, but as if he were coming today. Some would have said, beloved, we ought to be living as though Jesus died yesterday. He arose this morning and he's coming back this afternoon. Because, beloved, the reality of it is at any moment, at any time, it could be today. Jesus Christ is coming again. Are you ready? The king is coming. Are you ready? Can you say today, even so come, Lord Jesus, the king is coming. Father. Thank you that you're in complete and total, absolute control of everything. We have been so blessed to just focus for a few moments On our glorious Savior, the faithful witness, the firstborn among the dead, the King over all the earth. Father, thank you for sending him to die in our place. Thank you for your love. Thank you for the washing in your blood. Thank you for making us a kingdom of royal priests. We know it's not because of our merit. Not because we're so great. We were wicked, vile, wretched enemies of God. Sinners. Yet while we were still in our sin. 
You loved us. Now, Father, I pray that you would help us to live as we ought to live, to grasp this truth that the King is coming. Lord, to be ready, to be ready, to not be ashamed at his appearing, to living a righteous, holy life in your strength and power. And Father, I'm especially burdened if there might be someone here today who does not know you, who is not ready, who would mourn at your coming. I pray your Holy Spirit to work right now to convict them of their sin and Lord, to allow them to enable them to place their faith in Jesus Christ alone. I pray your will be done in these closing few moments. May you be glorified and may your will be done in Jesus name. Amen. Our closing hymn this morning is 245. Spirit of God, descend upon my heart. You're not ready today. If you don't know the Lord Jesus, I would invite you to come and allow us to share Christ with you. Take a Bible and explain things to you and help you. Maybe you want to come today and just pray. Maybe you want to come today and just worship as you think about who Jesus is and what he's done and what he's going to do. Maybe your life is not what it ought to be right now as a Christian. Maybe you're living in a way that you'd be ashamed if you were to walk in that back door. Maybe today you need to come in confession and repentance. 245, as we stand and sing, Spirit of God, descend upon my heart. Let's stand and sing.